But the, the real question is, can you play it while prancing around and shaking your head and... Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Don't Quit Your Day Job. My name is Paul and I am your host, as always. And once again, I have back my friend and guitar confidant, uh, hero of all who play guitar, Mr. Mark Romalia. <laughs> <laughs> What's up, Paul? How you doing, brother? It's, it's been Thanks a minute since uh, since we've been uh, been uh, chatting via video here. It's been a while. I feel like you've had all these cool guests on. You got no room for me for a little <laughs> peon. <laughs> there will always be room for you. As as I tell everyone, you're the reason. You're you're the reason why we do this podcast. And uh, if you notice, I did drop your name to Jennifer Batten, and so maybe she'll uh, she'll. Uh, fly you out somewhere to do a show that'd be great i'm, I'm waiting I've, I've been looking at my phone every day since i've heard the podcast and still she still hasn't called me damn it um, uh, thank you man that's very cool for for sure so before we started the podcast we were chatting and um i demanded that you play the Steve I stuff from the movie Crossroads, um, which I actually <laughs> recorded, so maybe I'll throw it at the end of this episode for for people oh, to hear. Are you playing that? <laughs> yes. Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> um, but what we were, what I was joking about, what I thought was funny was it's a hard piece to play, but in the movie Steve I is like preening and dancing around and shaking his head and and all of that. <laughs> so that's really part of the performance. So it's a hard piece to play. Um, is that something, could, could he actually do that in real life, do you think? Steve I, knowing Steve I and how good he is, did he actually like dance around in the, in the recording studio doing it? Or do you think it's so hard that he actually had to sit down and, and do it? For him, I don't think it's so hard. I don't. I don't think he danced around in the studio. He doesn't strike me as that kind of guy. He's not. He's not uh, like that in that way. I'm sure he just sat down and recorded ten versions of it and said that one's the best one. Let's just use that or or edited if he made a mistake in one he didn't like. But you know, I mean, it's a it's a pretty genius piece, and it's like it takes Pagnini and it takes some great arpeggios and it's super melodic and it's you know. It's it's a very very cool little guitar showpiece, so to speak. But right. I mean, I saw him live with David Lee Roth, and you know, I thought it was one of the most incredible shows I ever saw. I was blown away by his musicianship and showmanship because he was like all over the stage, throwing his guitar, acting like a rock star. And I remember a few years back, he put like his diaries on his website so you could read, you know, what he was doing when he was touring back in the day, okay. you know, Frank Zappa stuff. And I found his entry for when he played at the Hartford Civic Center back in the 80s. And he said it was one of the worst shows he ever had, and he played awful that night. And I remember I'm like 15 or 16 thinking that was the best show I ever saw, and Steve I is the greatest guitar player ever. And he wrote down that it, it sucked. <laughs> so, like, it just shows you perception is is everything. Right, and we, we've definitely talked about that, and you felt the same way where you, you feel like you've played bad and people come up to you and, and are like, yeah, you're the greatest guitar player ever, and, and I, it's just... I, 
Yeah. Head scratching, head scratching for sure, you know? <laughs> but it's funny, I have to tell you, um, talking about that question there, did Steve Vai like dance around while he played it? There are musicians I know of that do actually perform in the studio. Singers do it a lot. You know, they'll pump themselves up and maybe not dance around because they have to sing into the mic, but they'll yeah. definitely try to get a vibe and a feel by doing that. And I know uh, I have a friend who's an engineer and he recorded Motley Crue and said, Tommy Lee does all the the stick spinning and head, you know, arm crazy <laughs> movements while he's recording because it's become such a part of his style that he can't just play the drums all that shit comes out even when he's, you know, got the red light on. Wow, that's that's really interesting. Because you would think it would be harder, but you're right. If that's the way he plays drums all the time, then <clears throat> then that's second that's, nature. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Uh, going along this, this line of discussion about performance, the other thing that always strikes me about Yngwie, we've talked about Yngwie a little bit more recently here, his performance is just insane with his guitar flipping and high kicks and but <laughs> you still, got a high kick. I mean, come on. But still like the super precise shredding and all of that, you know, how how is it possible, do you think, for someone to be able to do that? Uh, well, I mean, just, you know, I don't want to I'm not trying to give away secrets or anything, <laughs> but I mean, who really gives a shit? I mean. If you watch these performances, you'll notice there are certain things they do for certain effect. And and by that, what I mean is like the easiest example of that, and I've told you this in the past probably, is like Zach Wilde and, and Slash. They wear their guitars very low, but when they play solos, a lot of time they do this thing where they put their foot on the on the monitor and then they kick the guitar up and they're holding it like perpendicular to their body and they're shredding and and people are like wow that's a cool rock star pose while they you know throw their head back or whatever but really they're just putting the guitar nice and close to them in an easy way like a, a, that they would be sitting so in a way they're getting into an easier position by just doing that rock star thing so right. to go back to Ingve watching his videos and stuff i notice a lot of times when he's being super flamboyant he's maybe going and then the riff comes and he might be in one of his Ingve poses. Sorry. Yeah. Can't even believe I had to just say that. One. But, um, but then, you know, when he's in, in, in his positioning, you know, he'll do his, you know, and he throw a fast run in there, you know, so he's not so much running around doing the fast run as he's, he's, you know, using different stopping points to, to, you know, to use his showmanship basically, you know, and, and, you know, I mean, he's very Richie Blackmore. You watch those old videos of Richie, and it was the same way. Richie just had this intense persona on stage, you know, and sometimes he just smashed the guitar, and he looked so pissed all the time, and it just it was kind of badass, you know? And I, I hear that all of that came from Pagnini, that classical violinist, that he was like, people thought he was possessed by the devil because right. he didn't just play those classical pieces. Like, he had long hair, and he was, like, wild on stage, and people would talk about him far and wide because he was, like, a, you know, the madman on the violin, so. I think those guys kind of took that a step further, you know? So thinking back now for when you were, were first in L.A., the, that late 80s, early 90s scene, um, we, we've talked about, like, the high quality of guitar player in L.A., especially at that time. Even though the songs maybe weren't great, the guitar players were all really pretty good. 
Technically um, proficient, I think, is probably the best way. I wouldn't yeah. say emotionally proficient. I right. wouldn't say musically um, sharing some great gift, but they could actually, you know, it was more like working out, you know, like yeah. they were all bodybuilders that, that were muscular because they could all play these fast chops, which I was always intimidated by because I was never a fast chops guy, you know, so, but that, that was more of it. It was more like an, an, an Olympic event where, you know, guitar players are like, I can play faster than, I mean, I used to hear that all the time. I can play faster than that guy. Oh, that yeah. guy, he's not that fast. And it's like, <laughs> I, I remember being like, I don't remember being at about speed. Like who gets to the finish line first of a song, you know, like a song is supposed to be a tempo and a rhythm and a feel. And you want to make the listener feel that same thing. And I go back and I listen to that music, you know, like just playing that M M3 festival made me go find like, you know, 80s rock playlists and I'm listening to the songs and every solo that came on, you know, there's, there's exceptions. There's guys like, you know, Warren D. Martini, I thought did cool stuff where he was very tasty and melodic and then he shred a little here yeah, and there, but yeah. it was never like the focus of his playing. Whereas you listen to some guys and the focus of their whole playing, you know, is just shredding, you know? And, and again, those guys are all great players, but I think producers also bring that out. They go, Oh man, everybody wants to hear red beach solo fast. So yeah. dude, go, you know? And it's like, there he goes, John Sykes, you know, another guy who could play super emotional, you know, like I thought his bends and his vibrato was great, but he could rip when he needed to or had to, but he didn't do it all the time. Right. And the thing about the LA scene was every guitar player in every band ripped all the time. And at first it was intimidating and then it was like frustrating because it's like, what's, why? You know, I used to leave, I used to walk out of shows after a while because I'd be like, God, that dude is just doing the same, same George Lynch licks meets Ingve licks and, you know, and he's preening and he's showing off <laughs> and he's, and it's like, but there's no songs, no choruses. And it's like his guitar is, is sounds like a buzz, you know, it's like yeah, a, like he's yeah. stuck in his amp, you know, and it's like I just like that that really turned me off for a while, you know, and it really what it did was it pushed me back into the music I loved as a kid, like blues, like B.B. King and Albert King and all those kings and um, and funk. You know, I had always loved funk music growing up. So I, I was able to, you know, get in a Doc's house mob. And it was like that was the thing I was like going, man, I'm now I'm playing music where I can feel it, where there's emotion yeah. going on. When I yeah. solo, you know, I can play a. You know, that to me felt a lot more than going. So so then two questions here. One is, um, well, let's start with the first one. What was the influence on Mariah then? So in terms of performance, you, you come from Connecticut. You want to be part of the scene. You got to play fast. You got to dance around. So was there, did you really just adopt that? Or were you already starting to do that when you came out from Connecticut? So when I came out from Connecticut, I was definitely starting to revert back into the stuff I, I had already loved and, and going and playing on the strip with all those bands really, it was intimidating in a way because I just wasn't an athletic guitar player. I was, I've always like Stevie Ray Vaughan guys with feel, you know? And, um, but I mean, you know, Mariah initially we, we put together because we loved like hard rock and heavy metal, you know, we loved Iron Maiden. We loved, um, uh, Judas Priest and Queensryche, we thought were killer. And then, you know, and then the more poppy metal bands started coming right. out, you know, the Dawkins, the Motley Crues, the, um, that type of stuff. And we started playing that, you know, and I, I sure I've told you the story before I saw Poison back open for 
for Rat, and they did all this choreography, and they had a show, and I was like, you know what, that's what most bands are missing. We get up there, we play, we act crazy on stage or whatever, but there's no show, and so we really tried to incorporate a lot of that poison kind of thing and then what happened was we came out here and every band said hey we're gonna try to incorporate that poison thing so every band had like the stage move so then that was like ixnade we were like no way let's not do that anymore you know we had like two little things where we might do a sidestep all at the same time you know like at this point in the song we're all gonna step left you know that, like, that would be our big mover but we decided that we were going to be as crazy as possible. We all bought wirelesses and we decided we're just going to run whatever place we're playing. We're going to go in the audience. We're going to stand on the bar. We're going to run to the balcony. We're going to play everywhere, you know, and somewhere on the YouTubes, on the interwebs, there's a video of Mariah playing at the Troubadour. And it's hilarious because it's filmed by the Troubadour. So it's like a balcony shot of the stage. And Honestly, I think I didn't have a wireless at that point because I was getting more back into my roots where I was like, I could hear the sound difference of a wireless, so I'm using the cable. I mean, I'd say like 70% of the show, the singer and the bass player aren't even on stage because they're just <laughs> running all over, the, all over the place, you know? And I'm the only guy up there on stage half the time and with the drummer, you know? And, and you know, the drummer was like, you know, my high school friend and he was really into Neil Peart and those guys. And every song had as many fills as you could fit in a song. So he, he fit drum beats in between the fills was kind of how it felt, you know? And it, and it was like, and he was such a the guy you couldn't tell that stuff to. And it was so frustrating because it would be like, dude, let's just, you know, transition to this part with a cymbal crash. No, it'd have to be blah, 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 next part. It's like, oh, we're already at the next part after that while well, you were still doing that fill, but whatever you want to do, Johnny. <laughs> uh, so then the, the last thing here, I feel like the epitome of that guitar style uh, was Vinnie Vincent, when Vinnie Vincent came out on the scene, and then it was just like nonsensical, fast playing without anything behind it. Uh, so was that also... Yeah. And then like a really bad vibrato at the end, Ben, like I just <laughs> demonstrated right there. But I mean, seriously, like I've saw concerts of them and that's how he played. It was like, you're not even in key half the time. You're just like trying to play as fast as your arm will move, you know, like you could do that at home alone. When they came on the scene, were they taken seriously by by you guys in, in L.A.? Uh I think because of some of the members of the band were respected, you know, like he had Dana Strum and Bob, Bobby Rock's a great Bob drummer. Rock, yeah, you know? yeah, like, yeah. He's super solid, you know, so please playing with guys that are respected. So in a way that makes you respected. But the thing about that is, is that it's just like once those solos came up, it was just like, I don't know what to, I don't know what to do with that. You know, like it doesn't move me in any way. It sounds super sloppy. You know, like I've always loved uh, that. Uh, that yeah. I can't think of the name of the living, song. But living the, color, living color. Right. Thank you. Yeah. But the solo is very atonal. But I liked it because it fit the music. Like he didn't. He shredded a little, but he had like there was some melodic content to what he was doing. Like whereas Vinnie Vincent just sounded like he was playing the melodic minor scale and trying to play it as fast as he could till he got to the <laughs> note that he could hold and go. It's like uh, okay, cool. <laughs> 
Awesome. Uh, all right, let's move on then. Uh, so you're still doing your Sunday solos when you can fit them in. I know that you're busier now. You guys are you're about to go on tour with Little Caesar in Europe. Um, but your most recent one had, let's say, different production values than your, than <laughs> your previous ones. So the new one looked like it was shot um by someone who knew what they were doing rather than you setting up your iPhone uh in your in your room. So so what's the story there? Are you going Hollywood with your uh, Sunday solos? <laughs> I guess I mean not on purpose. It's kind of a funny story, you know. I mean, I, we talked about I work set lighting, you know, and I work with this director named Wally Fister, and he uh, he actually won an Academy Award for uh, The Dark Knight, and uh, he did Inception. He's done a, a bunch of movies, and now he does a lot of commercial. He does commercial work, and so we were shooting a commercial at Warner Brothers on stage six where they did Casablanca, among other amazing movies in this <laughs> stage that we're on. And so... Uh, Basically, um, Wally goes, bring your guitar on Saturday. I want to use the set and everything we have here for your Sunday solo. And I'm like, come on. And my buddy that, you know, my, my gaffer, my, the guy who hired me, my lighting director goes, just bring your guitar. It'll be fun. So I brought my guitar. He sent Matt Damon home after he was done. And he goes, go <laughs> grab your guitar. No one on the set leave. Everybody stay. We're going to film Mark. And I'm like, Oh my God, there's like 50 people here who all want to go home. And now they, they have to stay because Mark has to do his Sunday solo. We hate Mark. <laughs> so, uh, so he got the, the camera, which is like this incredible crane camera that they're using for this shot, which is like super computerized, high tech. He had us bring all the lights out and they just sat me in the middle of the set and the guy who is the camera operator, his name is um, David Lukenbach, and the focus puller is named Phil Shanman. They uh, Shanahan. They both won Academy Awards too for their for wow. what they do with cameras. <laughs> yeah, and so my lighting director and those four guys basically uh, recorded me and. Uh, Help, help me do something cool and I, I put it up and I was kind of nervous about it in that you know like this is a, a, a set for a commercial that's not going to be out for another few months and you know <laughs> no one's supposed to know that Damon's in it and on top of that the set's not supposed to be seen by anybody and he even Wally Fister even asked permission and the guy was like eh maybe not and at day end it was like right in the middle of the set sit there <laughs> I'm like okay you know you're the boss so what am I gonna say so we uh, basically did like three takes and he was like is that good and I'm like yeah it's great and he's like all right cool thank you and then he's like bring your guitar on Monday we're gonna jam so I ended up jamming with him after that you know and that was kind of my payment for for getting uh, Academy Award winners to shoot my Sunday solo which as my wife said I can never do it anymore because how can I top that when right. I get Steven Spielberg to do my next one <laughs> so yeah exactly so I mean that one looks so good and I'll, I'll link it in the podcast so people can check it out I mean everyone should go and check out all of them because they're all really good but the improvement in video quality as well as audio quality, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, is remarkable. So now you're just going to go back to you sitting in a room with uh, with an iPhone or an, I an iPad uh, doing it. And I have to tell you, Wally, well, I was, I was got my guitar, I'm standing there, and he's like organizing everybody and telling them what they're doing. And uh, he goes, so what, what should we record this with? And I, I didn't realize he was talking about what lens size, you know, that they, they wanted to swap lenses out. And I go, <laughs> I always use my iPhone. And he goes 
we're not using a fucking iPhone. He goes, look at this camera we got here. And I'm like, I'll let you do your thing. Sorry. I'll I'll go to my corner over here. Sorry about that. (laughs) But isn't Apple advertising the iPhone as uh, high quality enough to shoot a movie on? Isn't that like in one of their commercials? Probably, but I think the Airy <laughs> 3000 or whatever that camera is that we're using might be just a slight bit better. And the focus puller that we're using, I think, yeah, he's probably got it a little better. So was it more nerve-wracking than playing at M3? Uh, well, yeah, because there was only like 20-odd people standing there staring at me all waiting to go home. You know, like, <laughs> I wanted to go home. Hell, Matt left. Let's get out of here. You know, what are we going to do? <laughs> but everybody had to stay for me. Um, it, it, you know, once I sat down and I was I was playing, you know, I, I, I've i always in my head had this thing and I never felt comfortable thinking it, but then I saw Serena Williams do an interview not too long ago and I was like, that's exactly like what helps my confidence is, is she was in a room of reporters and they asked her some shitty question and she goes, well, I really don't care what you think because I'm better than all you guys at tennis. I could beat all you guys in this room at tennis. So you can say what you want, but I'm still better than you. And that's, I was in that room thinking, no, there's, you know, these guys are Academy Award winners, but none of them can play guitar the same way I can play. You know what I mean? So yeah. I felt like uh, I can do this. So let me just do what I do, you know? And I mean, it's something that has always helped. And in and, and, and a sense, you can use that to anything, you know? I mean, it's just like, hey, this is my thing. If you're doing your thing, most of the time, there's not 10 experts on something right. in a room unless right. you're at a guitar symposium. And then I'm not going to use that same thing, you know, well, <laughs> I'm standing in a room with that, that's what Steve. I was going to ask about. Like if you go to M3 and you're playing and you know, Brad Gillis is there and all of these awesome players are there that, that kind of doesn't work anymore. Right. Kind of. Yeah. Kind of doesn't. But then uh, the other aspect is I'm playing on the same stage with them. I'm, they're my peers. So I really right. don't care regard you know so it's just shifting that mental focus or mental balance that that we all have to do you know and i mean i'm 52 it took me a lot of like if i was 30 i might have been like oh shit there's brad gillis oh my god i'm gonna mess up everything i play which i definitely have done in front of famous people because i've been like oh I'm, i mean marilyn manson's right there john five's right there holy crap you know like uh, like think you know so that's the worst thing you can do is think, you know? So yeah, it's like, you yeah. just got to get out of your brain and then it gets better. And, you know, I learned to adapt luckily on stage, you know, like I would get nerves sometimes when there was that certain person there staring at me or watching me, but then that shit would just, I'd figure out a way to work through it. Sometimes it would take a song. Sometimes it would not even, you know, just be a, a quick butterfly and gone, you know, okay, and that's it. Right. Um, did you ever view, just a short aside here, did you ever view guitar playing or being in a band as competition when you were younger? I know you don't feel that way now, but when you were younger? I didn't really, you know, like I've always been the kind of guy, and I think this is why I've always been friends with a lot of musicians, because I've always tried to be an, an encouraging player, you know, and in the way that I, I read something about how everybody's got something to offer. So even when I teach, you know, it's funny, because I, I can see people that think they suck, but I see something that they do really well and I can try to take that or at least make them feel good about what they're doing really well, you know? And that's, that's, that's the thing, you know, it's like, it's, it's art, you know what I mean? It's like, how do you say Dolly is better than Picasso? You know, I like, you can't, they're so fucking different, you know? So it's like, why do you say is, and I mean, I see the debate it makes me crazy. Like is Steve I better than Stevie Ray Vaughan? Are you, you're (laughs) kidding, right? You know, like, 
they really couldn't play each other's stuff. You know, like Steve I could play anything, but he can't make the guitar sound and feel like right. Stevie Ray Vaughan does, right. you know? So that, that to me has always been a, a thing I really hate, but it's like that's this society, you know? I mean, this society just thrives on making everything a competition, right. whether it's politics, us against them, whether it's music, he's better than that guy, he's faster than that guy. And it's like, I guess, you know, I guess I'm a hippie artist because I just think there's room for it all and people dig certain stuff, you know? I mean, who's to say who's right or wrong because their taste is is that, you know, yeah. is, is, is into that, you know? It'll be it'll be interesting to see if you still have this positive attitude and positive outlook on giving lessons and, and playing with people after you give your first lesson to Charlie Thornton. So Charlie's been on the Charlie's been on the podcast a couple of times. Uh, I know Charlie pretty well, and I know that you're gonna he's gonna start taking lessons from you. Uh, right. So it'll we'll talk after you've given your first one to see if you've quit playing guitar. Okay. There is somebody that's always going to push you over the edge, right? I mean, and that's just, there's no, once you walk off that cliff edge, there's no coming back. So, I mean, Charlie, you might be it. I don't know. <laughs> awesome. Well, let's, let's finish up here with, um, you were just talking about getting nervous if uh, maybe if someone famous was there watching you. And I know you have uh, the Richie Kotzen story. So, so, so Richie Kotzen played in, in Poison for one record, uh, pretty famous solo artist guy. Um, Mr. Big. Mr. Mr. Big. He was in Mr. Big, and he, he does a bunch of stuff with Billy Sheehan now. I can't remember those band names, but... Um, winery, winery Dogs. Oh, yeah, that's it. Winery Dogs, right. So, so what's your Richie Kotzen story? Uh, so... Um, Little Caesar, we did a show a couple weeks ago at uh, the Viper Room in Hollywood. It only holds 250 people, and it was with a band called Junkyard. That was another 80s rock band. They had a song called Hollywood that... They were very cool. Um, and so between the two bands, you know, being being legacy bands, as they call it, air quotes, um, we, we sold out, had 250 people there. And... Uh, <clears throat> we're playing and you know, I'm looking at the audience and it's cool. Cause everybody's nice and close. Everybody's really into it. And our third song in, I'm playing a solo. Um, hard times is the song I'm playing. And I, I open my eyes at the end of the solo and Richie Kotzen standing right under me <laughs> and he's just rocking out and we get to the chorus of the song and he's singing along. And I'm like, that is crazy. And I'm like looking around, like I can't, but that's, that is Richie Kotzen, right? You know? And I mean, I know he's not super famous, but he's a very well-respected guitar player who really is a master of his instrument. Right. And I, I look to my left and I see him walk back to a table and it's the singer for disturbed. It's uh, Dave Draymond. It's the singer for fuel. I think his name's Brett Scallion. It's the singer for ugly kid, Joe Whitfield crane. And the four of them are sitting at a table and they're <laughs> singing every little Caesar song and rocking out. And I'm like, I'm like, what, what is going on right now? I'm like, I know they're not like huge rock stars, but they're still like quote unquote famous musicians, you yeah. know? And it's like, it was kind of like, it was, nice in that it can you know it, it made me go hey man people do dig little caesar even my contemporary you know musicians thought thought enough of us to come see us and sing along and hang out but it was funny you know finishing a solo and seeing richie Kotzen standing right there because the guy's such a great player and i'm like holy crap he's just watching <laughs> watching me up close you know and 
went back to his table and sat down, but still, they still kept singing, you know, and my wife was standing there and she was like, they sang like every song. She's like, you have no idea. She's like, they were indie. They knew your band. They were into it. So that's that, pretty cool. That is really, really awesome. When when you guys play, if you do Crusados or you do Little Caesar and you're in L.A. or you're in California, is the audience skewing older compared to Europe? Because I know when you go to Europe, um, you get younger. You tend to get like a mix of younger people and older people. But yeah. in, in, when you're when you're local, what's the audience makeup like? Audience is a little older. It's definitely people that have been through the scene that used to come see us. And you know what we get that's kind of cool is we get a lot of people that always wanted to see us. Oh, I was on vacation and I saw you guys were playing the Viper Room, so we came down. You know, it's stuff right. like that. Or, you know, also in, in L.A. you get a lot of peers. You know, I mean, I think I had probably five or ten friends that came down in that whole crowd, too, just because, you know, music's kind of back. So yeah. people are going to, going to see it again, you know, so... Now, that part was nice, too, just seeing people out and about. You know, I don't know what's it's going to keep going. I hope it does. But I saw they just canceled the New Orleans Jazz Fest. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to say, uh, you know, we were talking also before the show. I, I yesterday played a played a bigger show here in, in Pittsburgh and there were a million people there. You know, it was a lot of people yeah. walking around nice. and stuff. So we'll see if now people get sick from that. It, it definitely will be interesting to see. Like Lollapalooza, I saw some of the overhead shots at Lala, and it was Oof. a sea Man. of people. It was just crazy. Yeah, no thanks. Yeah. I didn't. I never liked being in a crowd like that, even when there wasn't COVID. Right. So, I mean, <laughs> God, that's just like a breeding ground for bacteria. No thanks. Yeah. Right on. Well, thanks to Mark. Thanks to everyone who's listening. Please continue to listen. Please tell your friends. Please do all of that stuff to help out the podcast. We very much appreciate it. Um, Mark's going to be traveling. I'm hoping to uh, talk to him while he's overseas to get uh, sort of the the firsthand news of how the tour is going and all of that. Um, so, so and, and yeah. To cut to cut you off real quick, it's true that what you said about Europe it's really interesting. A lot of families there always bring like their kids to the shows, or they have like you know the younger kids that for whatever reason decide to go see an American band. But it's really it really is interesting because yeah. like yeah, the Viper Room was pretty much age appropriate for us, you know, 45 to 60 or something like that. But man, in Europe, it could be like, seriously, like 15 to like, you know, 80. Yeah. It's like, I've seen the gamut in, in there because I think they just love music in a, in a different way than we do. Yeah, for, for sure. Well, thanks buddy. Uh, I appreciate it. Stay safe and, and I'll, I'll talk to you soon. Play, why don't you play, play the, uh, can you, can you play the, uh, our intro song? Can, do you, do you remember how to play that? Nah, I, I just remember it starts somewhere down there. <laughs> Something like that. I liked all the strings at the end. <laughs> all right, thanks, man. I'll talk to you soon. All right, thanks, brother. Man.